I invite you to turn with me to the 45th Psalm, Psalm number 45. This is a beautiful psalm. Pray the Lord would bless us today as we would look to its merits. Psalm number 45, and I will go ahead and read the the full song, and we'll direct our hearts to a couple of parts of it uh, in particular. Um, but it would feel wrong for me to give you a line of a song and not read you the whole song. And uh, so we'll start by reading the, the whole song uh, here in Psalm number 45. The underscript on this psalm says, To the chief musician upon Shoshanim, for the sons of Korah, a masculine, a song of loves. My heart is inditing a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Let me give you some context just quickly. This is a psalm that is written for the marriage of a king. For the marriage of a king. Verse 2. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right or a righteous scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad." King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of offer. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thy ear. Forget also thine own people in thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter in all glorious within her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy father shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. And we'll stop there at the conclusion of Psalm number 45. A beautiful psalm indeed. Some have wondered about the nature of this psalm, we are no, told that it is a psalm of loves. We know the intent that it was a marriage song. So some have reckoned that it was a psalm to be sung at the marriage of Solomon and Pharaoh's daughter. Some see both Solomon and Christ in it and try to uh, marry both of those two things in their understanding. But I think it is evident that it is meant to recognize Christ and the great marriage that awaits 
Christ and His church. Now, I will not get into those mysteries today. I want to look to a specific point uh, here within this psalm. But I pray that you would spend some time with this psalm, that the beauty of it would shine abroad in your heart. Because it is a wonderful thing to recognize the greatness of our King and the love that He has for His bride, and that we would pay attention to the instructions that are offered to us as His church. Make no mistake, marriage as we know it naturally today is but a representation of the love that Jesus Christ has, that the bridegroom has for His bride, the church. And it is a beautiful and wonderful and glorious thing. And I... I, I wish I had the time to go into those depths today, but uh, our, our hearts have been stirred towards uh, one thing in particular, so we want to be careful today uh, of how we spend our time. Before we get into that focus, I want to spend just a couple of minutes uh, setting up in, in this first verse and the underscript to provide the right context here uh, for this psalm. Tell us it is to the chief musician upon Shoshanim. Shoshanim means the lilies. And so some have described that this must be arranged to a song that people would have known, a song called the Lilies, and that it was to be arranged after that same manner. Sometimes how we take songs and we'll set them to the tune of some other song for the purpose of helping us to remember things or things like that. But I think that knowing the songs of a poetic ring to them helps to bring to light what this, uh, this means when it tells us that it is to be sung or said according to the lilies. What does Scripture tell us about the lilies? It speaks of their beauty and how God pr- provides for them and how in their splendor and in their beauty that even Solomon wasn't arranged according to the beauty of the lilies. And so there's a, a poetical point that the psalmist is making here that this song is one that has the same beauty of the glory of the lilies of the valley. He's describing its intent that there is a beauty in this love song that is being written. It is written for a purpose that it would be sung by the sons of Korah. That there was going to be a choir that would sing this song. And that it would be sung... As a masculine, this word masculine means a contemplation or an instruction, that there was an instructional message in this song. And that it is indeed a love song, a song meant for a wedding. So as we tie these things together, there is a beauty in this song as it was set to the lilies. As we look that it was purpose for the sons of Korah, for the, the, the people to sing, as it was an instructional song and a marriage song. What does it tell us? A love song. What does it tell us? But that there was an intent and a purpose to how the people were to sing. And the same thing is true for us today. That there is a purpose for how we are to sing. Now I want to just make this note quickly. We live in a day and age, especially as a Baptist church uh, here, in a Baptist church with our history and our conservative nature, in which there remains a debate even today as to whether we should be singing the old hymns or more contemporary music. And I want you to know I like both. I don't have a problem with either. But I want you to know we're having the wrong debate. The debate is not about whether we should sing hymns or about whether we should sing contemporary songs. It should be, how are we singing? Are we singing with the fullness of our hearts to express praise and glory unto the Lord? Or are we singing to satisfy our own preferences and desires? 
Notice how careful the psalmist was to express how this song was to be sung. That they wouldn't be sung haphazardly or half-heartedly, but there would be a purpose in how it should be expressed. I like what C.H. Spurgeon said about it. He said, heartless hymns are insults to heaven. Let me say that again. Heartless hymns are insults to heaven. We should be singing out of the depths of our hearts as we express the glory and praise and thankfulness of our hearts. Listen to what the psalmist wrote in the very first verse. He said, my heart is indicting. He said, it is overflowing of a good matter. He said that he, his tongue was as the pen of a ready writer. He was writing this song as it was coming from the depths of his heart. He was expressing this. It was as though he said, my, my, my heart is so full that my pen can't move fast enough to record the words of this song. His heart and his mind were so stuck to it and so settled in what he was writing that it had encapsulated all of his being. Why? Because of the, the focus and the message of the song that was to be sung. Let me ask you this. You ever had a bad song stuck in your head? It happens to me about every day. And I got this problem that when I go about singing songs that my wife gets them stuck in her head too. And it becomes this circular thing where I get a song stuck in her head and she starts singing it. It gets stuck back in my head and we just go round and round. Now there are some songs that get stuck in my head and I cannot wait till it gets out of my head. You're just stuck on the same tune and the same line over and over again. But then there's some songs that get stuck in your head and it just is good, isn't it? Or you're walking about and you're tapping your foot and you're beating your steering wheel with your thumb and you're feeling that song and it is bringing you great joy, isn't it? My kids and I went to Lowe's yesterday morning. We were on our way back from the store and I was turning on different songs and singing with them and having a good time, singing Sugar Pie Honey Bunch and those sorts of things. And we have a good time when we do those, don't we? And what do they do? What, what does a song have the ability to do that other things don't? Those melodies strike a chord in our hearts. They breed memories. And those memories then latch on to specific moments. And as memories latch on to specific moments, all of a sudden we are held to those. And they have a reference point in our hearts that we are able to hearken back to later on. You guys probably heard the song Stand Still, haven't you? Stand still and let God move. That song was being sung one night at Southside Church and there were several people that were on the altar praying. And There's one part of that song where it says you can rest assured and be secure that God is moving right now. And in that moment of that song, I remember you could just feel the presence of God. And a little while later, Heather Elliott came out of the bathroom there at Southside and she'd been seeking the Lord for a very long time. And she said, I got it! And people said, well, when did you get it? And she said, during that part of that song. That's a memory that's tied to more so for her than it is me, certainly. But even that memory is tied to my heart. Why? Because that's the power that music has. Isn't that, I think that's really cool. God's given us a gift in music. Make no mistake about it. And so there's an intent here. And I just don't want us to miss that. I'm going to get to the point here in a minute. And you're going to say, Derek, why would you spend all the time on that? And you can talk about those things later. But I think it just can't be missed here. 
And especially as you would go home and you would spend more time with this psalm, I think that it will just set it at such a greater depth in your heart about what the psalmist was writing about here and the purpose for which this song, don't make no mistake, this is a song and the reason and the purpose for how this song was meant to be sung. All right, with that, let's, uh, let's get to the matter here that I, I want, want our hearts to look at here uh, this morning. Read with me at verse 3. It says, Gird thy sword upon thy thigh. Belt your sword to your thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and because of meekness and because of righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies whereby the people fall under thee. I want us to see the king as he is prepared for the wedding. The psalmist cries out and calls out in this song to strap or to buckle the sword to the king's thigh or to the king's hip. He is a king that is ready for battle. You probably watched recently as they had the, the, the funeral services for Queen Elizabeth over in uh, the United Kingdom. And maybe you've gone back and you've seen of the wedding ceremonies that they've had for kings and for princes there. And, and you've probably even seen how we have uh, military weddings. And even here recently with Sister Becky's family when they wear uh, their, their uh, army uh, attire for those things. And how they are dressed and it's reflective of, of their service. And how even according to that service that there sometimes are even weapons that are on them. Here is a king who is going to his wedding, yet he is dressed for battle. His sword is girded or, or buckled to his right side. And he goes out in his majesty and in his glory. This is not some ordinary wedding. This is a wedding that is meant for a king and for his bride. And therefore, this king is not going out as one who would try to make his way as a commoner, but he is set apart and he is distinguished and it is recognized in his glory and in his majesty. And so the psalmist writes in verse 4, and this is where we want to spend some time today, he says, and in thy majesty ride prosperously. He's telling him to ride forth and to go forth. And to go forth how? But prosperously. That this king was going forth and he was going forth to the wedding and he was riding forth in his majesty and that there was a victory that was assured in his riding. Now, I want us to look then at the purposes or the reasons or what was compelling him to ride. It says because of truth, because of meekness, and because of righteousness. And in fact, today, if I was to give a title for this sermon, it would be the true, the meek, and the righteous. Some of you have probably heard those advertisements for the United States Marine Corps that says the few, the proud, the Marines. I submit to you that those who enter into the Lord's battle are the true, the meek, and the righteous. The true, the meek, and the righteous. He says, Because of truth and meekness and righteousness in thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. 
Now, we see here the, the rendering in the King James Version that he would ride forth prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. Some other versions you'd read that says for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. But alternatively, this could also be rendered ride forth upon truth, meekness, and righteousness. And so if I may, just for a moment, if I can take some license here, and I believe that I can based upon the translations that we read and understand of this Scripture, paint a picture in your mind's eye of what is happening as this king heads to his wedding. He has girded up, and he has on his uh, suit, his, his uh, army apparel, as he is ready for battle, and he gets into his chariot. And as he gets into his chariot and he is called to ride prosperously in his glory and his majesty, there are three war horses who are tied to the chariot. One war horse is truth. One war horse is meekness. And one war horse is righteousness. And they are what would compel or bring the king to the marriage. And there is an example for us in these three, upon which the king rides prosperously. Upon which the, the three things that compel the king to the marriage. I don't know if you know it or not, but there is a battle that is being raged round about us even this very moment. If the Lord was allow us to look and to see spiritually the things that were going on around us right now, we would see a fierce battle taking place between our adversary, Satan, and his demons and his angels that were cast forth out of heaven with him, and the angels that have gone forth as the ministering spirits of God. And we'd see this spiritual warfare has been going on now for thousands of years. And we see its effects, and we see how it rages, and we see how it's grabbed a hold of, of high places, of principalities, and how it has an impact on our culture, and on our day, and on our society. And as that impact grows more and more, as the years wax on, what happens is that impact even then begins to be felt within the church. And what's taking place right now, my friend, and I don't want you to be asleep to this, but what's taking place right now is that this battle is growing fiercer and fiercer, and the fiercer that it grows, the more incumbent it is upon the church of the living God not to be silent, but to engage in the battle itself. And so as we think about and we consider how is it that we will engage in this warfare and how is it that we will engage in this battle, we can take lessons from the Lord Himself that show us how He has been prepared and upon which He has been compelled into the battle. That He goes forth riding upon these three. Truth and meekness and righteousness. Truth. Jesus proclaimed before Pilate that he was a witness to the truth. I don't know if you remember that account or not, but do you remember what happened in that conversation between Pilate and Jesus? Jesus had been delivered to Pilate by the Jews. They were saying that Jesus had been blaspheming and saying that he was a king. 
And certainly as a result of that, the Roman government felt threatened by this man who had professed himself to be a king, and the Jews felt threatened because this man professed himself to be the son of the living God. As a result of that, these Jews had delivered Jesus to Pilate. And so Pilate is questioning him. And he says, and he asks him, he says, Art thou a king? And Jesus says, Are you asking me that I'm a king of your own regard? Or are you asking me if I'm a king because someone else has told you? And so Pilate uh, considers these things and he, and he goes further and he says, now, you know, Pilate's not a Jew. Pilate says, I'm not a Jew. I'm not the one that has delivered you to myself, but your people have delivered you. So why have they delivered you? He, Pilate inquires as to what thing Jesus had done. And so Jesus answers again and he does not dispute whether or not he was a king. But what he did say was this. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, if it were of this world, then would my servants fight that I wouldn't be delivered to the Jews. He said, but my kingdom is not from hence. He said, my kingdom is not from this realm. So Jesus gave the point that he was a king, but he said, my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate asked Jesus again, and he said, are you a king? And Jesus confirmed as much when he said, it's as you have said. And so he revealed his kingship to Pilate. But then he defined his rule as a king. This is what I want to get to. Listen to this. So he said that he was born for this end, and that he should bear witness unto the truth, and that everyone that is of the truth hears his voice. Jesus said the purpose of his coming, the purpose of his kingdom, was that he would bear witness to the truth, and that everyone that is of the truth hears his voice. And this, of course, prompted Pilate's famous response when he says, what is truth? But Pilate had asked the wrong question. What Pilate was dealing with here, Pilate was very conflicted. He had this raging mob and he had Jesus in whom he found no fault in. Yet those people were out for blood and they wanted the life of Jesus to be given to them. And so Pilate is convicted, conflicted. That's why he's asking, what is truth? But he asked the wrong question because instead of asking what is truth, he should have been asking, what truth are you speaking of? Because Jesus said, I have come to bear witness of the truth. Let me say this. The truth is the foundation. It is the foundation of the kingdom. And you say, Derek, how, how is that? Can you describe that to me? Didn't you hear what Jesus said? He said, those that are of the truth hear my voice. If you've been saved by God's grace, if you know the truth that I am speaking of today, when the truth is spoken, you know it and you hear it and you can understand it. When the Lord speaks to your heart, the Lord comes and He presses upon you, you feel it and you know it and you understand it. Just as the sheep know the voice of their shepherd, so are those that are the Lord's. They know the voice of His Master. And he says that this then is the foundation and the power of the kingdom of God. And so then, if the truth is the foundation and the power of the kingdom of God, so also is it the foundation and the power of this battle. If we would have victory in this battle that rages around us, it will be founded upon the truth of the Word of God. Listen to me. When we see all these things that are going on around us and you watch the news and you hear all the talking heads debating and you get on social media and everybody is expressing their opinion about whatever the hot topic is of the day. 
Listen, those battles aren't won by submitting our opinions into the fray. Those battles are won by speaking the truth. Here, over the last several months, we have heard the great debate concerning abortion as the Roe versus Wade decision was handed down. And everyone's got their opinions and everyone's trying to split the baby proverbially as it would be. As they try to say, well, maybe life begins at this stage or that stage. And even lately, there's been some that have come out that have expressed that when you hear a baby's heartbeat, that that's a made-up sound and it's not real. Listen, all of those things are just a craziness. And they're just a bunch of people's opinions. I will rather trust in the truth of the Word of God concerning the matter that says that the Lord is the One who gives conception, who knew us before we were formed in our mother's belly and makes certain in declaring to us by the example of John the Baptist or when he was in his mother's womb when the Spirit of God caught up in him and he left in his mother's womb that life begins at conception. And I submit that to you not as my opinion, but I submit that to you as the truth of the Word of God. And do you see the difference? That is how battles are won. Battles are not won by man's opinions. Battles are won in this spiritual warfare by the truth of the Word of God. I want us to see that. So there's truth in. Is this first war horse. This truth is that same truth that calls a lost soul out of darkness and into light. It is that same truth that sets us free from sin and sets us at liberty. It's that same truth that remains written on our hearts and declares to us that we are His. That we are citizens of a heavenly country. And listen to this. You ever seen when, when there's a battle, and you probably have seen uh, videos of maybe World War II or Vietnam or I hear lately out in the Middle East as battles go on and things. And you can always identify who which party is, is belonging to. Why? Because they normally have a flag on their arm, don't they? You ever seen people in their military fatigues or in their uniforms and they'll have a United States flag? Why? To identify on which, under which flag for which country they are fighting. Listen to me. We are citizens of a, another country. We are citizens of heaven. And according to that, we do not wear a flag on the uniforms of this warfare. But what we do wear is the truth of Jesus Christ, our King. That is how we are identified in this warfare. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Those who know the truth hear His voice. Let me say that differently. Those who are of the truth Hear his voice. And so it is our identifier in the midst of this battle. What about this other war horse of meekness? Do you know what meekness is? I think sometimes it gets identified as, as weakness. We know that the meek shall inherit the earth, but I think sometimes it's described or it's understood as just being lowly and humble. But I think the best way that I've heard it described, and you probably have heard it described this way too, is that meekness is con controlled strength. Let me say that again. Meekness is controlled strength. Jesus said that He is meek and lowly in heart when He gave the great invitation that those that would come to Him and, and take His yoke upon them and try Him because that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. He said also in that same passage that He is 
meek and lowly in heart. Now, I don't think when Jesus said those things that He was saying that He was weak and, and humble and just a no good, low down nobody when He was saying those things. I don't think that's what He meant to you. No, I think instead what He was relating to us was that He can be known and He can be understood. Yet, yet, yes, though He is the living God. Yes, though He is the One who has descended from heaven. Yes, though He is the One who is the righteous and spotless Lamb of God. Yes, though He has all the same attributes and characteristics of God the Father and He is sovereign over all, yet He is still knowable. You can come to Him Because He controls His strength and He controls His power and He condescends to men of low degree just like me and you. Meekness is also the word that is used to describe Jesus when He came riding on the back of that colt as He entered into Jerusalem. I talked about that a few weeks ago. But it says that He was meek. And if you will, once again with me, allow for your mind to get this, your mind to get this image in your mind's eye. As Jesus was seated on the back of that colt and he was riding into Jerusalem as he came out of Bethany. And can't you just picture him there? There's all this fanfare that is going on as people are putting palm branches on the ground and shouting hosannas to the king. Yet there are others who are begging him that the people would stop their noise and that all this pomp and circumstance is just a big commotion and they're telling him to, to have his people to hold their peace. And can't you picture Jesus on the back of this colt having all power bestowed to him by the Father? Yet there with a countenance that is stoic and true and secured. And He sees the people that are shouting hosannas, yet He knows many within the next week will deny Him. He sees the palm branches that are laid before Him, yet He knows that what awaits Him is a rugged tree that will be born upon His back as He carries His cross to Calvary. And then he is met by those naysayers that are trying to convince him to tell those that are shouting hosannas to keep their peace. And he looks at them and he says, do you not know that if these held their peace, the very rocks would cry out? Here is Jesus in the mix of all this conflict and commotion leading up to the crucifixion on the cross at Calvary. And can't you see him meek on the back of that horse? He's riding in for what will be a victorious battle for which He will give His life. And He is controlling His strength all the way. Can't you see that? That's what it looks like to be meek. So as we engage in this warfare, we are to do so in this same meek manner as Jesus did. That the attitude of the warriors on this battlefield would not be arrogant or proud, you see, sometimes there is a warrior who enters into the battlefield who feels as though those that are rising against him cannot hold a candle before him. Isn't that what Goliath found when he was crying out and shouting defiance against the armies of the living God? And he laughed when he saw that ruddy country boy named David coming before him, not having any sword or any shield, but with just five smooth stones out of the brook and a sling in his hand. And he began to laugh and he began to cry out about this little David that came before him. But we know who won the victory, don't we? It wasn't the arrogant and proud Goliath on that battlefield that won. 
But it was that country boy who did not doubt, did not waver, but his faith and his trust was secured in the one who had the power over the battle in the first place. And so it is with us. What I, I will tell you, what I see too often of Christians engaging in this warfare is that they become so lifted up in their own arrogance and their own pride and they talk down to people and they are unable to, as we've been studying in Sunday school, as we've been looking at the missionary journeys of Paul about how he entered into the synagogues and how he spoke there with the, the Jews and the Judaizers and, and how he spoke to them and how he uh, convinced them and how we read about how he was able to teach them and instruct them upon the Word of God is that He reasoned with them. He submitted arguments. They had discussions regarding these things. Yet instead, we so often, we're not willing to spend the time to reason and to work through what the Scriptures say and why it is so. But instead, we are no different than Goliath trying to shout down our own victories rather than trusting in the One who holds the victory in His hands. And that is the Lord's. So it is the attitude of the warrior not to be proud or arrogant, and neither weak nor doubting, but calm and certain. That even in the moments where it seems like the battle has swung the other way and that we will be defeated, that we would not doubt, that we would not worry, but that we would trust and that our confidence would remain not in man, but in the Lord. And that we would trust in the midst of this warfare that we advance in the confidence of meekness. And finally, we get to the third war horse. This war horse of righteousness. Our way of fighting then is by righteousness. That not of our own, but the righteousness that has been imputed to us by Jesus Christ. You see, if you go out into this war, this is, isn't this the exact thing that our adversary tries to use against us on the battlefield? We begin to speak of the truths of Scripture and all of a sudden somebody calls into mind our past and our history and, and all the sins that have been before us and suddenly we are seeding ground. Why? Because people look to us and they examine our righteousness and they see that it is lacking. But we don't go forth into this battle according to our own righteousness. We go upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He then must be the substance of our message. He then must be the one that we point to and rely on and trust as we cry out to others and to say to look not to us, but look to the one who we are secured upon as that very foundation of truth that we spoke of. And His righteousness then is what prevails, not ours. For it is in this way that we are made to bear the sword. What are we taught of as the sword? What's the sword that we have in our hands today as Christians? It is the sword of the Spirit that is found of the Word of God. Isn't it? You ever heard somebody call their Bible their sword? You see, we don't go about wielding just any old battle instrument, or any old weapon. But instead, we go about wielding the truth of Jesus Christ. 
So then, if we are to wield this truth of Jesus Christ, it is not wielded as of one who has only heard or knows of the Word of God as a scholar would, but it is wielded by one who has known it in their hearts, upon whom that righteousness has been imputed, so that we wield this, this sword then not as novices, but as those who have experienced it. And doesn't that set us apart against everything else? There are so many people that look to the Word of God and they study it and they read it as though they are reading a textbook. Yet for me and you, my friends, we read our Scriptures not as a textbook, but we study and we understand the Word of God as it would direct us in all the paths of our lives. I heard one person put it one time that we shouldn't be studying the Scriptures as a scholar who's on sabbatical, but instead that we should be reading the Scriptures as a warrior who's about to take the battlefield. And don't you see the difference in that? So we fight by righteousness. And so this righteousness then, seeing that it is not ours, but it is of the Lord's, it compels us not to fight by force, but to fight by obligation. You see, my friends, when I see what I have received in Jesus Christ, I am compelled to fight in this battle because I see that I have nothing else that I can do or can give to the Lord except to engage in this warfare. I have no choice but to fight. For while truth is the foundation, and while meekness describes the character of those who are purposed for the battle, righteousness then becomes our call to take up arms. I do not wield my own sword in this battle. I wield the sword of the Lord. Folks, I'm trying to describe to you what it looks like to go forth into this battle. Because what I've also seen is those that have entered into this warfare and they do so upon their own lust and their own thoughts and their own desires. And they look like somebody who's running out to do something that they've never tested before. And before long, you're able to see them in the midst of that warfare and they are overwhelmed. Why? Because they went out unprepared. You ever seen somebody shoot a gun for the first time? Let me put this another way. My brother-in-law got to watch me this week. Been working on our house, getting it prepared for us to move into, and needing to do some sanding on some floors. I've never used a big sander before. My dad was using it for a while, and Chris was using it for a while, and I said, I'm going to try this thing out. I squeezed the handle on that thing, and I had never used it before. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody try to use one of those things that doesn't know what they're doing, but it's pretty apparent pretty fast they don't know what they're doing. And I was getting pushed around by that thing all over, and finally I just stopped and I said, I'll just leave that to others. That wasn't <laughs> for me. But the point that I'm relating to you is that there are some that go out and they try to engage in a battle. And they go out for the wrong reasons and with the wrong purpose in their hearts, and they are quickly overwhelmed. But when we are compelled by these same three that have compelled and caused our King to ride majestically, to prosperously enter into this marriage, it is the same then that we would take place in. Listen to verse 5 and we'll try to close. He says, Nine arrows are sharp in the heart of the King's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Describing the arrows. So we know then that our King is not 
girded alone with only the sword, but that he would have his bow and these arrows as well. And it describes to us the nature of these arrows, that they are sharp. And how we understand their sharpness is how they affect the hearts of his enemies. What do we know about this sword that we carry of the Word of God? That it is quick that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. That it has the ability and the capacity to cut and to cut deep, piercing even the bones and the marrow. What does that mean? It means that what we wield with us, not only is it effective, but it is effective for its intended purpose. For we go out in this battle not trying to convince people that we are right. We go out into this battle not trying to win arguments. We go out into this battle trying to win hearts. And that is the difference that I think is causing us to fail. You see, this battle has been going on for a long time. I think Christians of every sort would recognize that it seems that we have been seceding ground here over the last many years. I think one reason why is that we've been so dead set on trying to win arguments that we have failed to recognize and to understand that our purpose is to win hearts. And as we win hearts, we see that we are compelled and we are able to find victory. For while this fighting is fierce, we know that that final victory it is indeed assured. And so take your place in the chariot. Enter into the warfare, not of your own, but by truth and by meekness and righteousness. I'll close with these three, just trying to set these in in our hearts here this morning, that truth is the foundation of the battle. It is our reason for fighting and it finds its power in Jesus Christ. Meekness is our character in the battle. It is the determination of our fighting and it is experienced in Jesus Christ. Righteousness is our action in the battle. It is our way of fighting And it is realized in Jesus Christ. Folks, I don't know if you were as troubled as I was after the association. I confided in some of you about how troubled I was. I worry. And I lose sleep. Wondering about the cause of Christ. In this present age, in this present country, in this present community, where will the cause of Christ be in five years? Will, where will the cause of Christ be in ten years? Where will the cause of Christ be when my grandchildren are growing up? Where will the cause of Christ be when my grandchildren's grandchildren are growing up? I believe it was Ronald Reagan who said that freedom is only one generation from slipping away. I worry that what we see in our churches is that the cause of Christ is only one generation from slipping through our grasp as well. And so I pray that today would be a wake-up call to the Lord's church. That we'd be ready, prepared, and desiring to engage in the battle. But that we would do so not on our own, but that we would go forth as the true, as the meek, and as the righteous. And I thank you for listening to me today. Something on your heart.